0: Looking tonight at Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. Uh, for the sake of context, I will note that if you grew up in a Roman Catholic Church, and maybe some of you did, you will know that in the Dewey version of the Scriptures, the Roman Catholic English translation, the, they put the second commandment and the first commandment together inappropriately, because the Roman Catholic Church uses images in the worship of God, which is what is being explicitly forbidden in the Second Commandment. And so in order to kind of do away with the force of the commandment, the Roman Catholic Church has coupled the First and Second Commandment and has divided the Tenth Commandment into two, which is a very strange thing in church history. But um, both uh, the, the history of the Jewish church In the Old Covenant, as well as the Christian church in the New Testament, has seen the second commandment here in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, as very distinct. Yes, related, and yes, distinct from the first commandment that we saw there in verse 3. And so looking at Exodus 20, beginning in verse 4, we now read, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep My commandments, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, a number of years ago, a somewhat prominent man in our own denomination was leaving a fairly significant pulpit to move to another city and another church. And I, out of interest, wanted to hear his farewell sermon. And so going online, I found his final sermon to a people he had pastored for about 10 years And what will be of help to you is to know that in that uh, historic church, there was a stained glass window of Jesus as the good shepherd carrying a staff and a little lamb in his hands. And in this pastor's farewell sermon to his congregation, he said, and I'm loosely paraphrasing, Whenever you are discouraged, whenever you are anxious, whenever you are fearful, look to the window. And I thought, that is not Jesus. Those are fragments of glass. That is not the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are not to look to a window or an image to garner spiritual strength in your soul. In fact, when the Apostle Peter writes to that uh, persecuted body of believers in 1 Peter, he says to them, about Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now we do not see him, yet believing, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Um, the Christian faith, it has been well said, is a religion of hearing, not seeing. That's something that all of us would do good to reflect on the christian faith is a religion of the ear not of the eyes we walk by faith paul says not by sight now that is spelled out so clearly here in the second commandment as moses has come to the mountain as he has brought god's people to the mountain as the lord is now entering into his covenant relationship with israel as the covenant lord making the mosaic covenant and giving his law and we have seen something of the purposes of the law and the uses of the law last Lord's day evening. Yet as God continues to give these 10 words to Moses, these moral laws that are binding on all men for all time, these commandments to which God requires perfect, perpetual and personal obedience. We now see that the Lord gives Moses a second commandment and he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, it would be easy for us to say on a cursory reading what is different about the first and the second commandment. They both seem to be forbidding idolatry. The first commandment, the Lord said, you shall have no other gods. Beside me or before me in front of me in my face and here in the second commandment you shall not make any carved image you shall not bow down and worship them and while there is a sense in which God is continuing to forbid idolatry the second commandment is very distinct from the first commandment in that the first commandment tells us who we are to worship and the second commandment tells us how we are to worship him Phil Reichen puts it this way. He says, the first commandment has to do with worshipping the right God. The second commandment has to do with worshipping the right God in the right way. The first commandment has to do with worshipping the right God. The second commandment has to do with worshipping the right God in the right way. Now, before we look at this in any depth, I will tell you this evening that this commandment has formed the sort of backbone of what the Reformed and the Puritans would later title the regulative principle of worship. We are to worship God in the way that God himself has mandated and only in the way that God has mandated it. Uh, John Piper gives this great illustration about the regulative principle of worship. He says, if it was your wife's birthday... And you came home with a six pack of beer and you said, honey, I can't wait to celebrate your birthday. Six of my best friends were coming over. We're going to sit on the back porch and drink beer. She would not be happy because that is not what's pleasing to her. That is not how you celebrate your wife on her birthday or most other days I've learned in marriage. But, <laughs> but the living God, how much more should we be sensitive to the fact that the living God who gives us life and breath in all things The God in whom we live and move and have our being has to tell us how he is to be worshipped and we are to worship him in the right way because he is the right God and the only God. And so the second commandment is far more reaching and far deeper than just avoiding making images. Again, as I said last Sunday night, I, I highly doubt that any of you have carved for yourself an idol. And yet, as we noted, John Calvin says that the heart is an idol-making factory and that we love to worship God in ways of our own devising. There was a story of a little girl in school, and she was drawing a picture, and her teacher said to her, what are you drawing? And she said, God. And the teacher said, well, how do you know what God looks like? And the little girl says, well, you'll know when I'm done. (laughs) And it's actually a very helpful story because that is what so many professing Christians do in their approach to the living God, in their carelessness, flippancy, and bringing into his worship things that God has not required. Um, We are to be a people who are very sensitive to worshiping God in the right way, according to his word, and only as he has commanded us to worship him. I want us to consider just three very brief things before we come to a time of prayer tonight. I want us to consider the rule, and then I want us to consider the reason for the rule, and then I want us to consider the recompense and the reward associated with the rule. The rule, the reason, and the recompense and reward. We'll notice that um, the Lord first opens by saying, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Now, why, why does he limit it to carved images? Because... The Lord knows the propensity of the hearts of fallen men and women to want to make visible representations of him. You see, the rule itself is built on the very character of God. God is invisible. Our Westminster Confession says he does not have body or parts or passions like we do. That is very important. The very essence of God is that he is invisible. The invisibility of God is is the very foundation of the rule that he gives in the second commandment. Um, the invisibility of God is built on his transcendence because he is holy, other, because he is infinite, because he is a spirit, because he is not like us, because he is not like anything that he has created. He's given us this commandment. Um, you'll notice that even in the rule itself, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Um, You'll know as you've read through the Old Testament that oftentimes and very frequently in the Psalms, when the Lord is revealing himself through the psalmist, he will say something like, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see, he is the creator, and this is the creation And we dare not confuse the two things. Remember, we said last Lord's Day evening that the great problem with the heart of man is that we like, as Paul says in Romans 1, we like to worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And that we exchange the glory of God for images made like forfeited beasts and creeping things and birds, the baser things of creation, And you don't have to study civilizations very long to see how their religious worship is built on images, on creations of their imagination, on etchings and drawings. I was telling somebody this morning that uh, one of the really heartbreaking things uh, about the Notre Dame, and and I've heard well-meaning Christians say, isn't it marvelous how... How they painted the the stories of scripture all along the inside of that building. No, it's not marvelous. They took the scriptures from the people. They kept the Bible from the people and gave them cheap images to instruct them rather than giving them God's word. And, And the second commandment is really built on both the invisibility of God because he is transcendent. But also the rule is built on the revelation of God. Now. Before we look at that in further detail under the reason for the commandment, I want us to consider the rule itself. As I've already noted, that this is broader than just commanding us not to make visible, carved representations of God. It is certainly forbidding that. But it is telling us how God wants to be worshipped. And it's telling us that we are to be zealous to come into his presence on the basis of, ...of what he's told us. Now we see that, don't we, in the account of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. Remember, God struck them dead because they offered profane fire, strange fire to God. They didn't worship him the way that he wanted to be worshipped. They added to his worship. They did what they wanted in his worship. Um, I do want to say this this evening. For those of you who are really gung-ho about the regulative principle of worship... In many churches like ours, where we love the regulative principle of worship, we can fall into the error of thinking the particularities of what we do that are not commanded in Scripture, the way we sing a hymn, what hymnal we use, what we do in the execution of this element is not the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship is that we only do those elements That God has commanded in his word, not in the form or the style or the execution of them. In fact, I would argue, and Derek Thomas has a really great article in the 2010 edition of Table Talk magazine on the regulative principle where he says, far from demanding uniformity, the regulative principle actually gives great breadth of diversity in the church, provided we are carrying out the elements and only the elements that God has commanded in his word for his worship. Well, what are those elements? Well, they would be the reading and preaching of scripture, the singing of God's praises in accord with his truth, prayer, the carrying out of the sacraments according to his word. Um, They would include in certain services special times of thanksgiving, oaths, vows. Um, We in our service have a call to worship and a benediction because we find those things in scripture. We have a time of confessing our sin because we find that in scripture. We have a time of the assurance of pardon because we find that in scripture. These are all things that God has given us in his word and told us that these are the things I want you to do when you come to worship me. One of the very interesting things, and I would encourage you to look at this, is in chapter 21 of the Westminster Confession of Faith on religious worship in the Sabbath day the puritans at westminster give you some fundamental basic elements of how god wants to be worshipped and you would think the very first thing that they say is the reading and preaching of scripture and it's not in fact in that in that chapter in which there are 8 paragraphs 3 of those paragraphs are dedicated to prayer so i wanted to do this tonight Three of the eight sections on the worship of God in the Westminster Confession are focused on the role that prayer ought to have in our worship, to whom we ought to worship, and how we ought to pray to him. Listen to this. They actually first say this. The first thing that we ought to have in our worship, listen to this, prayer with thanksgiving being one special part of religious worship is by God required of all men. And that it may be accepted, it's to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to his will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and, if vocal, in a known tongue. You see, the Puritans understood that in our worship it is more than just the ministry of the word coming from the minister to the people. It is more than just all of us singing his praises It is more than all of us just coming to the table. It is essentially us calling on the living God. You know, this is fascinating. The very first worship service in scripture is found in Genesis chapter 4. The very first public worship service, what we're doing right now, is found at the very end of Genesis 4, and it almost doesn't seem to fit. God has given us the genealogy of Seth, the replacement seed of Abel, from whom Christ is going to come. And all the way down at the end of that genealogy, Moses writes these words, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That is not saying this is the first time anyone ever prayed. They clearly prayed before that. This is the first time believers came together in redemptive history and had a collective corporate worship service. And the way the scripture denominates it, is that then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Why is that such a vital part of how God wants to be worshipped? I would put this forward to you that that is part of the rule of the second commandment, because the only way into the presence of the invisible God is by faith in Christ. And when we come into his presence, we do so calling on the God we cannot see. How often in scripture, when God talks about what it means to worship him, it's call on the name of the Lord, call on the Lord, whoever calls on me. You see, worship involves us calling on him. He calls us into his presence, but we call on him, trusting in the God we cannot see. And that brings him great glory. When we call in faith, through the Son, by the Spirit, According to his will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, in a known tongue. Got to throw that in there. God is glorified. Because that is a great exercise of saving faith in him. The Puritans used to say that prayer is the breathing of the soul of faith. Prayer is the breathing of a believer's soul. Um, you don't need images to call on the Lord. In fact, God won't hear you if you try to come to Him through images. Um, it's a dishonor to Him. He wants us to trust Him and to call on Him. You know, when when God brings those indictments against Israel in the Old Covenant, sometimes He'll say things like, "These dumb idols have ears, but they can't hear." And then he'll say things like, is the ear of the Lord too heavy that it cannot hear? You see, he loves to hear when his people gather together like we are to pray to him. He loves when we come by faith in the Christ we can't see. And so the rule is so much broader. Again, this rule has to do with worshiping the right God in the right way. The commandment is not so much forbidding the making of false gods, but of the making of false representations of the true God to whom we call in worship and in prayer. Well, let's consider the reason. I've already acknowledged that the transcendence of God and the invisibility of God is so much a part of that. That's one of the big reasons why, because if we could see God, we would reduce him to the level of a creature. He would be just like us. He is... He is far above us. He fills the heavens and the earth. He made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. And so the invisibility and the transcendence of God. But then there's the fact of the revelation of God. God is a God who has spoken and he has spoken in his word. And he wants us to be a people who live according to his word. And that's not something that we see. It's something that we hear. Um, Yes, we are people of the book. But we are the people who have received what God has said, and we have said, I believe that you are the true God, even though I can't see you because you have spoken and I take you at your word. The revelation of God in scripture is a sufficient revelation for us to worship him. That's the point of the second commandment. Now I would go further and say that the revelation of God doesn't stop with scripture. It moves to the living word, jesus christ who is the full manifestation of god um, while we are forbidden from making images of the true god god has come in the flesh in christ and he said if you want to know me you see me in my son jesus says whoever see, has seen me has seen the father who has, whoever has not seen me doesn't have the father um that, that Jesus is the embodiment of God. He is the very brightness of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his person. Why will God not let us have an image of him by which we can worship him? Because God says, I am going to be the very image when I come in the person of my son. And then he says, I am going to restore my image in you as you are united to him by faith. So that the image of God and Dean Walters and I were talking about this this morning, the image of God now in the world is believers who are united to Jesus by faith, who are being conformed to his image in knowledge and righteousness and holiness, who are being renewed to look like the Lord Jesus, not in a deifying sense, but in a union with Christ sense in which God is going to manifest his image In his people, not so that they'll be worshipped, but that he'll be worshipped as people see his work in them and his image in them. Eric Alexander says this. God is a God who has given us a perfect, infallible revelation of himself in all his glory. He has done it in his written word. He has also done it in his living incarnate word. He says in Jesus, God has given us the perfect revelation of his image. He says, do you see the glorious way that in his wisdom and grace, God has opened the possibility for us knowing him, that we may come and worship and honor and exalt him. He has revealed himself in the scriptures and especially in the person of his son. So Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the father. That's how we come to know God. And that means when we pray, we dare not come into the very presence of the invisible God apart from the mediation of Jesus. Um, This is why it's so important that when we pray, we pray in the name of the Son. We close our prayers in the name of the Son. It's not a mantra. It's not a magical formula. It's us saying to the Father, we are coming boldly into your presence because you have commanded us to do so, but we are only coming because of the mediation of your Son because we know that he has made it possible for us to come directly into the presence of the living God and to be heard and even let me say this tonight even to make our imperfect worship acceptable you know you will never pray a perfect prayer in this life you will never you will never have the experience of perfectly worshiping God from the heart with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength in any worship service in this life. But when we come to the invisible God, the true and living triune God, through the Son, by the Spirit, in accord with his word, with reverence, with joy, with humility, and with great dependence on him, God removes, as it were, the imperfections and makes our prayers acceptable through Christ. Isn't that awesome? Just like our good works, they are all tainted with sin. Husbands, just try to do the dishes for your wife one time and her not notice. And you'll know what it means that your best works, that's not a good work, that's just basic stuff, are tainted with sin. Our motives are wrong, our affections are wrong, our desires are wrong. But as we step forward in faith... And we say, I want to worship the God that I cannot see according to his word through his son. I want to call on him from the heart. The Lord makes our prayers acceptable. Well, there is one other reason, and that is that God is a jealous God. Notice in the commandment. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now. This is essential if we want to understand this. The jealousy of God is one of the most precious revelations of God in Scripture, that God likens himself to a husband, to his wife. And and we sometimes mistakenly think of jealousy as envy. We think, I look on what somebody else has. I don't have that. I'm jealous of them, whether it's possessions or status. That's not what jealousy is in the Bible. Jealousy is the proper response of a soul towards some object that belongs to it that is being misused or mistreated or being carried away from you. And so when God says that he is a jealous God, he is likening himself to a husband who is jealous for the love of his wife. What husband would there be that would be okay with his wife being taken into the arms of another man without having a burning jealousy out of love for his wife. And so the living God says he is jealous for us to desire him and worship him according to his word. He is jealous that we give him the glory due his name. He is jealous that we are bound to him. Um, uh, One writer, Christopher Wright, I love this. Write this down. Jealousy is God's love protecting itself. Jealousy. Is God's love protecting itself? It's a beautiful way of capturing it. Um, Why does God give this command? Because God is jealous of protecting his love for his people and his people's love for him. Um, I want us to finally consider the recompense and reward. And if you were anything like me, these are. These are difficult words to take in here. The Lord says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, we have here the recompense, God punishing the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. And the reward showing steadfast love to thousands who love him. And obey him. Now, this opens for us the question is there such a thing as generational punishment of sin? I remember as a young man, somebody trying to explain generational punishment for sin, which I'm going to say right here, I'm not entirely sure the Bible teaches, and I'm going to nuance this very carefully. Um, by pointing to the Kennedy family this person said me when I was young just look at Joe Kennedy and everybody else and I'm like well maybe maybe I don't think what the Lord is saying is that if one person is wicked then every generation is going to be wicked if one person in that lineage is reprobate and does reprobate things and perishes then every one of his descendants will perish. We know that from scripture. There were ungodly kings in Israel who had godly children. Ahab had Hezekiah. One of the most wicked kings had one of the most righteous sons because it's all of grace and mercy. And there were other kings that were godly and they had wicked children. So praise be to God that We don't have to think, well, because of all the sins I've done, that my children are up the creek without a paddle before the Lord. And yet there is another sense in which Scripture does teach communal and covenantal, if you could say that, sin. We see that with Adam, don't we? We were born dead in sins and trespasses because of the sin of Adam. There is a a communal nature to sin. Um, We see in Scripture when Israel... Sinned, or when one like Achan in Israel sinned, his sin affected the entire nation. There, there is. Don't let people tell you there is no such thing as communal sin. When there is sin in the camp, it can affect lots of people, and that means also in the home. And I think here, when the Lord says, speaking of the recompense, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those that hate, hate me. There is here a sense in which God is saying, do you want to know how dangerous it is to play with false worship? That there is a propensity that when parents enter into the false worship of God, that their children will follow suit, that their grandchildren will follow suit, that their great-grandchildren will follow suit. Uh, we see this again, don't we, in Israel's history. Generation after generation after generation of Israel worship foreign gods. Even though they had all the revelation of God, even though they had all the warnings, why did generation after generation after generation give in to false worship? Because the example of leaders in a church or parents in a home have an impact on On Those who are under you that God has placed under your authority in those spheres of authority and responsibility so that we would be very careful when we read this statement of God's judgment on false worship that we would be careful to say I do not want to set for my children an example of false worship that they will be apt to follow and it will end in their destruction. Um. You know, this is a very unpopular subject, especially in a pluralistic society like ours. It's a very unpopular subject, and yet one that we really, really need to focus on. Um, I noted last Sunday night, and I'll just note again, that when you read the Old Testament, the sin that is railed against by the Lord more than any other sin is idolatry and false worship more than the sexual immorality that accompanies it, more than the violence that often flows from it. Idolatry and here false worship are the most egregious sins before God because God is a jealous God and he will not give his glory to another. I want us to consider the reward be- briefly here. At the very end, notice this, but showing steadfast love. That's in the Hebrew, that word for hesed, covenant mercy. Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, here I think the Lord is giving us that principle of covenant uh, succession in a loose form. God is saying that He, his intention is to have a people for himself, and to have a people for himself generation to generation. That's very clear in the scripture. God loves to work in the family because God has purposed in himself that he is going to show mercy to a thousand generations. That doesn't mean there's not going to be exceptions. That doesn't mean that, that, that we don't have a Jacob and an Esau in the covenant family. But what it means is that God's ordinary work is in the home as as his people worship him rightly. Their children learn to worship him rightly. They then desire to worship him rightly. They teach their children to worship him rightly. And that is the mechanism God has ordinarily built in for the advancement of his kingdom until Christ comes again. Here's the good news. Not one of us has kept his commandments as we ought. Every one of us has worshipped him falsely in some way, shape, or form. Every one of us deserves his judgment to the third and fourth generation. Every one of us. I'm going to press that in tonight. You deserve the judgment of God to the third and fourth generation because none of us have obeyed him and worshipped him as we ought, and that's why we look in faith to the Lord Jesus. You know, one of the very first acts Jesus did in his earthly ministry was the cleansing of the temple. Remember, Jesus said, zeal for your house to his father. Zeal for your house has consumed me. What consumed the burning righteous anger of Jesus, what What ignited the righteous anger of Jesus, was the perversion of the true worship of God in all the abuses in the Judaic system. What what enraged in a holy way the righteous anger and, and inflamed the heart of Jesus to turn over tables and to drive out money changers was the perversion of the pure and right worship of God. And, and then what does Jesus do? And I'm going to leave you with this. What does he do? What does he ultimately do to ensure that there will be people who do love him and who do worship the right God in the right way? He goes to the cross in order to cleanse the filthy temples of our hearts and to purify for himself his own special people who are going to be zealous to worship him in the right way. Um, I do want to say this tonight just as a very random rabbit trail. Um, We can become so consumed with Um, The particularities of what we're doing in worship that we end up worshiping our worship. Please don't miss that. There are many people who are more consumed with doing everything just the way they think it should be done according to God's word. And they're not worshiping God from the heart. So we don't want to fall into that. But as we focus our hearts in faith on the invisible God in whom we live and move and have our being. And as we call on him, according to his word, through Christ, by the Spirit, and as we desire to worship him in a way that's pleasing to him, we will necessarily want to give him the right worship in the right way because he's the right God. He is the right object of our worship. So now as we take time to go to the Lord in prayer this evening and as we collectively call on the name of the Lord, Let's do that with these things in our minds and our hearts this evening.